Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Traffic jams, tailgating, pileups. Ugh, the joys of driving. How could it get worse? The federal government wants to have a say in what you drive. That's right. The Biden administration's EPA is pushing mandates that would ban two out of every three vehicles on the road today. Don't let Washington become your backseat driver. Protect the freedom of driving your way. Visit energycitizens.org. Paid for by the American Petroleum Institute. Hello, I'm Besha, and you're listening to the Slow Newscast from Tortoise. Now, you might remember a story that broke earlier this year. The premier of the British Virgin Islands was arrested on drug charges in the US. It sounded like something straight out of Miami Vice. But with the attention on the war in Ukraine, in the UK at least, the headlines faded away pretty quickly. In the BVI, not so much. In this week's episode, my colleagues Giles Wattel and Claudia Williams travel to the Caribbean. And they're asking, how did one of the world's major offshore financial centres and one of Britain's overseas territories end up like this? And what did Liz Truss, then the Foreign Secretary, know about it all? Over to Giles and Claudia. In the middle of an island In the middle of an ocean Lots of time for sailing I'm walking barefoot in the sand Though there's no island at all The 28th was a Thursday, right? It was a Thursday. It's April this year, 2022, in the British Virgin Islands. Cindy Rosen-Jones is in a bar when she gets a message from a friend. I'm laughing. It's not funny. It's just that that can't be real. Cindy's an activist and a TV host. The message is from high up, from someone close to the governor's office. Because I have a WhatsApp um, blast group of a couple hundred people. So when I send out something, it goes viral. So I didn't want to send it out if it wasn't true. And people believe when I say something, they rely on my word. And he's like, Cindy, I just got this straight from the governor's desk. It is real. So she shares the message. And a rumour starts to spread across the islands. I was shocked, you know, because always the good words, always the big speech, always at the end, to God be the glory. You know, it was always the religious tone. You know, we are so pure, we are so righteous. I felt betrayed. Just envision a, a bright, sunny day, you're having fun, thinking about your next move, and all of a sudden, you, dark clouds come covering over you and it, it, it casts a shadow and you couldn't think straight. I mean, for a moment, it was like, is this true? You know, I had to send out a second message and I was like, yes, it's true. The premier was arrested in um, in Miami this afternoon. He was arrested for basically trying to sell our borders to a cartel. That's what I boil it down to in simple words. 
those allegations are the reason we're sitting on a beach in the British Virgin Islands, in the dark, chatting about drugs. So unbelievable as it sounds, US drug enforcement agents allege that the premier of this island paradise agreed to a drug smuggling scheme of huge proportions. A scheme that, according to the US authorities, involved not just the premier of the islands, but the director of the ports authority and her son, and another as yet unnamed government official. They were offered hundreds of thousands of dollars to turn a blind eye when shipments of several tons of Colombian cocaine managed by the Mexican Sinaloa cartel were moved into British Virgin Islands waters and then onward via the US Virgin Islands and Puerto Rico to Miami, Florida and New York, the two main onward markets in the US. Andrew Foy was lured to Miami and arrested after checking a $700,000 down payment on a drug scheme that could have netted him $120 million. $120 million. That's about 10% of the British Virgin Islands' GDP. Instead, Andrew Foy, we believe, is now living 24 hours a day behind closed blinds in a flat in Miami, where he denies all the allegations. The islands he left behind are bewildered. The government in London, that still claims them in 2022 as a British overseas territory, says it knew nothing at all about the American operation to arrest their leader until after it happened. Almost no one in the BVI believes that. They see, instead, a long-running experiment in post-colonial government. An experiment that went belly up under the arm's-length supervision of Britain's last foreign secretary, its new prime minister, Liz Truss. Either she knew what was going on, or she didn't. Neither scenario is what you might call a good look. I'm Giles Wittell, and in this episode of the slow newscast from Tortoise, Paradise Bust, how a scandal in the British Virgin Islands unfolded on Liz Truss's watch when she was Foreign Secretary, apparently without her knowing. These islands are spectacular, pearls of the Caribbean, steep green forests, soft white beaches, perfect limpid water. It's no surprise that Richard Branson bought one. As natural wonders go, it's hard to see how they could be improved on. And the cartels seem to feel the same way. There are 55 British Virgin Islands, 45 of them are uninhabited, and only a fast boat ride from the American waters lapping the US Virgin Islands, the first stop on a conveyor belt of drugs to the mainland. BVI is a small place with a small population. I think it's about a little bit over 30,000 or something like that. This is Jason, although that's not his real name. He lives and grew up on Tortola, 
the biggest in the Virgin Islands. You go to the same schools as everyone, you know, majority of the people on the island go to the same school. So that's how you know everyone and stuff like that. The island of Jost van Dijk is a short ferry ride from Tortola's West End with a population of about 300 very lucky people. It's official, you cannot take the speedboat from West End to Jos van Dijk without feeling you're in a Bond movie circa 1968. I mean, <laughs> the, the boat is um, deafening and very fast, even though it's very old. The, the sea is ridiculous. Jos van Dijk has what you might call a reputation. In the off-season, it's hot and sleepy. At weekends and in high season, it's a mecca for sleek powerboats and tourists with expensive tans. It's home of the painkiller. Well, the painkiller was invented all the way back in 1970. Right here at the soggy dollar, you have the soggy dollar dark rum. And of the soggy dollar, a bar on White Bay facing Tortola. Over the hill, tucked away among palm trees, more laid back and with less to prove, is Foxy's. Foxy's is an institution like its owner, Foxy Callwood. Well, this is Foxy's. My wife um, runs it. Been here now for 50 years, over 50 years. Worlds collide at Foxy's. His family's lived on the island for eight generations. His clientele are islanders, tourists and expats in financial services. That's two pillars of the local economy right there. But there's a third. As Foxy's daughter Justine, who runs another bar on Jost van Dijk, explains. And this idea of the three pillars and the fact that... Can you explain that idea? The three pillars pillars of the economic uh, pillars of the BVI being tourism, uh, the offshore banking possibly. And there's actually literally... uh, rap song called The Three Pillars, um, talking about the idea that drugs is the third pillar of the BVI. Since November 2020, the Royal Virgin Islands Police Force has recovered nearly four tonnes of cocaine on the islands. That amount of cocaine would have a street value higher than the territory's annual GDP. Some drugs are sold and used in the BVI. Most are not. They're rooted through the islands Partly because, as Justine's mother likes to say, a lot gets swept under the carpet. But mainly because of geography. We're close to all these hubs and, you know, it's not hard for people to get involved. That's what I mean to say. We have Venezuela and everything right close to us. So people are going to get involved. You know, a lot of things do pass through. Of course, you can't stop everything and that's everywhere. But... The only reason is such is uh, a big deal over here because yes, we're small, but we're close to the main lands where these stuff come from. Eddie is a skipper who's worked on these islands for years. Again, that's not his real name. Do you ever see the actual drug boats moving around? You see boats that you are suspicious about, but I've never actually seen anybody drop any, you know, um, contraband right. uh, or pick anything up. We see things floating in the sea all the time. Well, like packages, bales. Yes, of- yes. But anything like that in a package that floats, we just try to stay away from. Does cocaine float? Sure, if you put it in the right container. Okay. And what makes you suspicious when you're looking at a, another boat? 
if uh, just the speed, the way the boat's set up, um, if they're traveling at night without running lights and going 60, you can pretty much bet that they're up to no good. A former senior British official explained how this fits into the bigger picture. The cartels bring coke by ship or plane. They drop big loads of it on or near an uninhabited island. Locals who might otherwise be in the fishing business put them in the kind of boat that Eddie sees and carry them lickety-split to the US Virgin Islands en route to Puerto Rico, Florida, New York. The US Drug Enforcement Agency is watching, but this step isn't far. It's barely a mile of water. And from what you've heard, what do they do when they get into US waters? Because you've got the DEA crawling all over them with drones and radar. Sink the boat. They sink the boat? Sure. If they're being run and being chased, it's easier just to sink the boat. Oh, okay. But if they're not, then what do they do? They, they figure, figure out a place to hide, and if nobody's on them, then they'll just, don't, then they make it. They'll go on to Puerto Rico, uh, past, you know, past St. Thomas, and go to Puerto Rico. I'm naive, my feeling now. You know, <laughs> just, I think that's the best, uh, the best thing to do is just kind of play, play dumb a lot of the times. Uh-huh. Don't see it. Stay out of everybody's business and keep to your own. That's what a lot of people here do. Only a small number of islanders are directly involved in the drugs trade. Others are frustrated by the association, which they fear will ruin the BVI's reputation. But the third pillar is hard to ignore. Drug seizures are frequent, and one cocaine consignment found in a policeman's backyard during COVID had a street value of quarter of a billion dollars. Looking back, it all starts to make sense. Here's my producer, Claudia, talking to Jason. Do you remember when you found out about what happened and how you reacted? I mean, I was a little surprised, but I wasn't, I can't say I was happy, but I was surprised, of course. It's, it's, it's a stain, of course, to have your premier get caught up like that. But as far as I know, you know, he's innocent until guilty, so. Does it surprise you to hear about that kind of thing happening on these islands? No, no. No, man, it's politics. Politics is, is a dirty game. I mean, for me, it was just understanding that he held a certain level of command in that community, even though I wasn't part of that community, whether it was being in the church, whether it was being in the school band and playing a mean French horn. Maybe um, he did that? Indeed. He was a staple in the band. Um, And then for, like, migrating into the church. Justine, Foxy's daughter, first came into contact with Andrew Foy not as the leader of his country, but as a teenager she lived with. There were no daily ferries from Jost van Dijk to mainland Tortola in those days, so she lived with the Foy family when she was at high school. She remembers Andrew as someone who had status, even then. From her perspective, as an uncertain teenager, his commitment to church and living up to the expectations of his community was, she said, superhuman. I mean, he was doing it perfectly. Right. You know? Was he a model kid in that sense? Totally as far as I know. Yeah. After school and college, Foy became a high school maths teacher. He first won elected office in 1999, aged just 28, and he became premier 
that's head of the government, in 2019. It's fair to say he divided opinion. He's amazing. I mean, that ability, I think, um, there's a level of confidence you have to carry yourself with. And I think that gives people comfort. You know, whether it's true or illusionary, the capacity to weave words or to present a picture is very comforting. Cindy Rosen-Jones, the activist and TV host, formed a different view. He was a dictator. There were a couple of things that were major concerns for me with his administration straight out the gate. There was an incident where one of his ministers wanted to have an open waiver in the House of Assembly to do business with government. The way he moved around um, the ministries. So all the money-making ministries were brought under the premier's portfolio, all of them. Those were big eye-openers for me. That doesn't seem to have surprised British officials who have followed Foy's career. One told us he came close to nailing Foy for alleged corruption in relation to government contracts way back in 2003. Foy was never charged and he denied any wrongdoing, arguing the allegations were politically motivated. Either way, most people were still shocked by what happened in April this year. I think you could call it a numbness. There was a numbness over the territory. Um, People were shocked. Uh, They couldn't believe what was happening. Um, And then there was anger. It's easy to see why. The scheme Foy is accused of taking part in could have been scripted for an episode of Netflix hit show Narcos. According to a US affidavit released on the 28th, a Sinaloa cartel operative from Mexico approached the managing director of the BVI Ports Authority in early April with a plan to move huge quantities of cocaine through the islands, three tons at a time, starting almost at once. The MD's name was Olin Vine Maynard. She was allegedly keen to help and said Foy would be too. He, she said, was a little crook sometimes. Her son joined the scheme, the affidavit says. In a later phone call to the man from the cartel, he said, the head coach wants to play for the team this season. That would be Foy. I think he was caught in a web of wanting to do and be and provide something that he couldn't. I think he expressed a level of confidence in where he saw this country going. But I don't think he necessarily saw it getting there without the aid of, you know, what we call the side hustle. If true, it was some hustle. Foy did seem to understand the stakes. The affidavit suggests he was often worried and uncertain. Twice, he asks the cartel guy if he's a cop. At one point, he says, it took me 20 years to get here and I don't want to leave in 20 minutes. Friends warn him not to go ahead. He ignores them. In one meeting, according to the affidavit, he fishes out a calculator and does a sum. From a 12% commission on four months' worth of shipments, he stands to make $80 million and possibly much more. 
In return, the affidavit continues, he promises to keep the cocaine safe and give the cartel a say in future political decisions. Who might run to succeed him, for example? You go to the polls and you cast your ex for who you expect to be your next leader. But they were planning that in advance, so it didn't matter whether you go to the polls or not. All the calls were recorded by the DEA. All the meetings were filmed. Many of them happened in the BVI. Foy allegedly decides to go for it. Julian Fraser is the leader of the opposition in the BVI. He worked closely with Foy and says the allegations are just that, allegations. Andrew Foy is like everyone else. He's innocent until proven guilty. Whatever evidence they have, they need to bring it forward and, and he has his day in court. But Fraser cannot understate the impact of the arrest. The arrest of, of Andrew Foy has changed everything. The DEA office was more low-key, more undercover. The US Virgin Islands is part of what they call the HIDA program. That stands for High Intensity Drug Trafficking Area. There uh, is 
no nameplate, no sign. There's just a doorbell. There's nobody answering the door. You cannot look through the door. Uh, it's blacked out. Um, I think we're going to have to cut our losses pretty soon. There is a police car outside. I think, but before we do that, hello. Is there anybody? Oh, hello. Hello. Uh, yes. I wanted to ask a couple of questions for a uh, podcast we're making. We chat to a disembodied voice through a blacked out door, get a number to call back, but no luck. They won't speak to us about what they call an ongoing investigation. So it's interesting. It's, obviously can't show his face. No. You know, the whole operation can't show his face. Not, hard, not easy to find. And how much of it is undercover? I guess a great deal. The DEA operates everywhere, including the BVI. Few people know that better than Dick Gregory. I'm Dick Gregory. I was one of the leading prosecutors here in Miami for some of the most well-known drug cases in history. Gregory was a prosecutor with the US Department of Justice for 42 years until 2018. We meet in his Miami offices where I ask him about that Hyder office in St. Thomas. In the land of the free and First Amendment, I thought I'd see a, uh, an office with a nameplate. Oh, no. No. It was really hard to find. I assume that there were undercover agents that, that come in and go out, possibly. Uh, I assume that there, there are also informants who, who may be uh, are reporting to them. I would assume for their own protection. They're not advertising their their uh, their profession. So uh, I'm not surprised at all. I'm amazed you even found it. In the 1980s, Gregory was involved in the jailing of Norman Saunders, chief minister of the Turks and Caicos Islands, another wildly exotic British possession midway between the BVI and the Bahamas. Later, he successfully prosecuted Manuel Noriega, the former Panamanian dictator, on charges of drug trafficking and money laundering. If you were running an operation like this, I'm talking about the BVI one, and you realised that your target was the head of the government, would you have to get clearance from Washington before green light? You would now. <laughs> when I did uh, Manuel Noriega, it was a different time, and uh, I had a certain amount of independence uh, that uh, I don't think they'll ever allow again. Because of you and Noriega? Uh, when, after I did Noriega, there was a rule sent through the Department of Justice that you cannot prosecute a head of state without the approval of the Attorney General himself. So are you saying that likely uh, the Attorney General of the United States would have known that this operation was happening? They might not have considered him head of state. So that was the situation in the Turks and Caicos case in which Gregory was helped by a devil-may-care informant and expert bush pilot called Barry Seal. Their pursuit of Saunders ended in a New York hotel in 1985. We rigged the hotel with cameras and microphones. Sure enough, uh, in walks Barry Seal and Saunders. They, you know, it's all tape recorded. Seal pays them a whole pile of money, and, and then you hear a knock on the door. Supposedly, it's a guy bringing uh, food or, you know, whatever. And uh, uh, Saunders is stuffing the money in his pockets. He's 
dropping it. He's stuffing it in his pockets. And he caught, got caught dead to right. He was arrested right there in the hotel. Right there in the hotel, yeah. How much did the UK government know about that case before it became public? I don't think they knew anything about it before it became public, although we did have, have a great working relationship with those guys, and they were very helpful. But if you go to head of state immunity, which is international law, and in, no question he was a head of the Turks and Caicos, but he was not the recognized head of state because the queen was still the head of state for the Turks and Caicos Islands. So it is possible that the US Department of Justice would not feel obliged to inform the UK government that one of its agencies was about to arrest the elected leader of a British overseas territory on the basis that he was not actually a head of state. I would be very surprised if this didn't go up, you know, fairly high in the department. The current attorney general is very much a man of the rules and he is, uh, you know, he would expect that he would be put on notice of, of something like this. And it may be a deputy attorney general, but, but somebody would be aware if you were had in your sights a, a prime minister of a, a, even a small country. And at some point, would you expect one of those senior officials to think maybe we ought to let the Brits know? Oh, I would, as, I would assume that, that, that they did. Uh, I, I would be, you know, unless this happened on very short notice. It might have, and we'll get to that. But most people on the islands are of one mind with Dick Gregory. They don't believe the British didn't know. America is England. England is America. You hear what? This is my belief. Then boy is like this. Mother and daughter. So then that makes this a joint operation to remove uh, the elected BVI leader from office. No, he had no call going in the company he was with. He do it himself. <laughs> what we can say with confidence is that the whole thing was a sting. Despite his suspicions and the warnings of people close to him, Foy walked into a trap. Which is how, after attending a cruise convention with other government officials, he ends up in Opa Locker Private Airport in Miami. So this is what we know. April 28th, Andrew Foy is brought here. Palm trees, blue skies, shiny Cadillac Escalade SUVs to carry the gazillionaires around, manicured semi-desert plants, and then three separate um, kind of oligarch-style uh, terminals for private jet passengers. Glitzy, slick, uh, gentle sounds of cappuccinos, and you walk straight through, out onto the tarmac, he would have turned right onto the concrete apron, and there in front of the US Customs Building would have been a plane, we think, rented for the purpose by the DEA. He walks on, he goes to the back of the plane, he's shown a duffel bag with $700,000 in it, walks off, he approves it as a down payment on the scheme, walks off and is arrested. But it is hard to state how emphatically rich and money this place is compared with where he is now and really compared with uh, most people's lives in the British Virgin Islands. This is, this is Miami Vice right here. The general manager of the terminal that we were just in said, 
That kind of thing goes down all the time. The DEA is here all the time. Why would they be here if it wasn't for cocaine and drug money moving in and out all the time? I've witnessed a few stars before, but that was something um, more. The, the storms that I know, they come with a whistle, but that storm came with a roar. You know, like, like a, felt like a freight train coming. You could actually hear like the, the, the ground or whatever rumbling. We're back in Road Town, BVI, in a car, getting a tour. I mean, during the, during the eye, during the eye, I came out, looked, you know, from my porch, I looked outside and I couldn't believe what was actually happening. It's five years, almost to the day, since hurricanes Irma and Maria hit the islands. And it's still hard to miss the impact. It's there as you enter the harbour, past half-sunk wrecks. It's there in buildings still without roofs. And it's there in the conversations. You know, felt like I had walked into a completely different um, dimension. The place looked completely foreign. The storms killed four people as they swept through, more in the aftermath. 85% of housing stock was destroyed and a lot of people didn't have insurance. It took months just to get the power back. We were out without current for current, like my area, for over six months. So in the nighttime, that's the governor's house. All right. Okay, on your right side. So it's a two-story mansion, but up with a view of the port, um, a colonnaded veranda, manicured gardens. I'd say what you'd expect for a governor's house, but with knobs on. Beautiful. It's an old building. It's an old building. The job of governor is an odd one. It's part relic of empire, part post-colonial invention, and usually held by a career diplomat assigned to represent British interests to the islanders and vice versa. Julian Fraser, leader of the opposition doesn't think it works. The governor is a civil servant in the United Kingdom. He comes here and he's a god. For as long as I've been alive, a UK prime minister had never set foot in the British Virgin Islands. Never. Unlike the United States, where the president goes to the United States Virgin Islands. It's not as if they don't know where we are. Because I can show you footage of Boris Johnson walking through offices here in the BVI right after Hurricane Irma in 2017. So he knew where we are. He knew where we are. But we don't basically exist, except in the cases where um, it's to their benefit. Gus Jaspert arrived as governor in 2017. He was young by gubernatorial standards, appointed in the wake of a 2014 commitment by David Cameron, among other things, to clean up offshore finance. That plan was derailed by the hurricanes. But as a parting gift, Jasper announced a commission of inquiry, an investigation into corruption on the islands. It yielded hundreds of hours of hearings and evidence live-streamed on YouTube and a devastating 900-page report. By the time of the hearings, Foy was premier and he resented them. The report was finished in April and scheduled to be published in June, but then Foy was arrested. 
In London, Liz Truss, then the UK's foreign secretary, expressed astonishment, almost like Claude Rains in Casablanca. She was appalled, she said, and immediately dispatched a junior minister, Amanda Milling, to investigate. The Commission of Inquiry report was released in full the day after Foy was arrested. And, you know, everybody was tuned in to the governor's speech that Friday. And by the time the governor was finished, I remember I just turned to my sister and I said, I'm going to call it a day and I'm going to go home. And I started crying. I think that day I I just felt absolutely, I want to say betrayed by the entire territory because I feel like things like this only happen when you're absolutely quiet. You're silent. You know something is wrong. Um, you know stuff is going on and you preserve yourself first. And we just didn't, you know, take accountability for holding them accountable. And so we ended up in this space, you know, So I I guess I was overwhelmed by all of that. The report made 49 recommendations to stamp out corruption. The first was to suspend the constitution and the locally elected government in favour of direct rule from London. The point of that was to implement the other 48 without too much dissent. For John Rankin, the current governor, the reasoning was clear. The UK has a duty to promote the interests of the people of the BVI, but also has a duty to protect them from any uh, abuse that may be taking place. And what the COI report has revealed is those serious concerns over potential corruption and abuse of office and failure in good governance. But for Julian Fraser, mentioned by name in the report in connection with government procurement contracts, among other things, the timing of the report's release just after Foy's arrest was too good to be true. It couldn't come at a better time. It's one of those situations where it's, it's like the perfect storm. Perfect for them. Immediately we moved from a people being accused and suspected of to a people being condemned of. Immediately. All fighting chances had moved from, from um, good to almost diminish to nothing. All opportunity to rebut the accusations was lost. I mean, there was absolutely nothing you can say in your defence. What can you say? Governor Rankin denies any link between arrest and report and denies knowing anything about the arrest in advance. Although, remind people in Roadtown of this and most of them tend to roll their eyes. This was a man with whom I worked for 16 months uh, as governor. Um, I was not aware of the events that were going to happen. Uh, I was only informed of them that morning, but I was informed uh, of them. Uh, I then uh, called the uh, deputy premier, who was acting premier at that point while Premier Foy was off island. Uh, I asked him to come and see me at Government House. Uh, and I sat down and informed him of the information that had been given to me, and then I made a public announcement at that point. But no, I was not previously aware. The double whammy of arrest and report has been welcomed by some islanders. I'm happy all of this is happening, right? Because it gets it done and done. You can't operate like this forever. 
right? This is that bridge. It's kind of um, an interim transition period. Now we have to really do things the honest way and actually make this place awesome. But for many, the idea of direct rule was unacceptable, including for Julian Fraser. Come on, I mean, this is the 21st century. We've gone through apartheid. We've gone through the abolition of slavery since 1834. You know what direct rule really means? It means that the governor himself, one guy, makes all the decisions. He is the one who's going to be the cabinet. It can't be right in the 21st century. In the end, it didn't happen. Fraser formed a unity government that pledged to enact the 48 Good Governance Recommendations in the Commission of Inquiry's report. But the threat lingers. You have to, you have to stay in, in line. You don't know what the line is. You have to stay in line. Governor Rankin characterises it as an insurance policy in case anything goes wrong. And heaven knows it could. He knows, Fraser knows, Foy knew that the Commission of Inquiry report contains detailed allegations of drug trafficking involving local officials. It would have been hard for Foy not to take these allegations personally, and indeed, in oral evidence, he appears to accuse the Commission of making the world think he was a drug lord. For decades, arm's-length control of the BVI suited most islanders quite well. And it suited the three pillars of their economy, and it suited London. But since Governor Jaspert's arrival in 2017, the UK government has been paying closer attention. There's a whole new floor of UK-appointed staff in Government House. Is it really possible that neither they nor London had any idea what was about to happen? Rankin says it was London that told him after the event. Uh, It was uh, London who informed me because they had been informed by the US authorities uh, that morning of the arrest of uh, Premier Foy. So the UK government was informed and the UK government then informed uh, me. So that was the the timing of the process that took place. This was not a joint UK-US operation. It was a US operation which led to the arrest of uh, former Premier Foy. But a short piece of audio sent to us inadvertently by the governor's office, recorded in the moments following our interview, suggests that the governor does usually sign off on DEA investigations on the islands and that he did know investigations were underway. There's a difficult point here in that I do give the authorization for DEA operations here. I mean, I was aware of the investigations generally, but I was not aware of What Governor Rankin is saying is that he does give the authorization for DEA operations and he was aware of the operations generally. He then says, but I was not aware before the tape cuts off. We put this to the governor's office. He maintains he had no idea Foy was going to be arrested and says the audio that we received supports that point. What the audio they sent us shows beyond question is that the governor is supposed to authorise DEA operations on BVI territory. So one of two things happened in Miami on April 28th. Either the UK government was genuinely blindsided by Foy's arrest, which would be odd if the governor 
who is, after all, responsible for security, is meant to sign off on DEA operations on his patch. This would mean the Office of the Attorney General in Washington declined to inform an ally that a head of government was due to be arrested in a planned sting operation. That the special relationship, maybe, isn't so special after all. Or Her Majesty's government wasn't blindsided and at some level acquiesced in the removal of a premier it had reason to believe was corrupt. In effect, it outsourced law enforcement to the states. Governor Rankin insists no one in the BVI is above the law. But he admits it's hard to bring high-profile people to justice because everyone knows everyone in the islands and it's almost impossible to assemble an independent jury. There is another possibility that Rankin wasn't told for his own safety. We were told there are times when a governor might need plausible deniability because of the risk of reprisals from organised crime. And this could have been one of those times. But it doesn't mean Washington wouldn't speak to London. When we asked the Foreign Office to confirm at what point members of Her Majesty's government were informed of both the investigation into Foy and his impending arrest, they pointed us to Liz Truss's original statement, the one where she says she's appalled, but not much more. When we said we had reason to believe she would or should have been informed in advance and were planning to report this, they said they had nothing to add. Foy's trial is set for next year. His co-defendants, Maynard and her son, are in pretrial detention. Foy, who could afford a fancy lawyer, has been released on a non-refundable $500,000 bond. Mr Foy, I'm sorry to disturb you. It's Giles with Tortoise. We traced him to a two-bedroom flat in Miami, where we saw the blinds twitch once, but no other sign of life. Hello, uh, Mr Foy, um, if you can hear me, the questions that I would like to ask are why you think the US government is pursuing you? Did the UK government know? What do you have to say to the islanders? Does all this make independence more likely or direct rule more likely? And of course, I'd like to ask, is everything in the affidavit true or do you dispute it? We understand the terms of his bail say he has to stay in that flat 24 hours a day, seven days a week, with an ankle bracelet to alert police if he tries to make a run for it. Dick Gregory says he could have cut it off, in which case he could be anywhere by now. There is one other possibility. Are you sitting comfortably? A well-placed source told us the DEA may have rushed to arrest Foy, infuriating other branches of the US government branches that may have been hoping to widen the investigation to target a small group of islanders originally from Lebanon, allegedly connected to the drug trade and identified by the DEA as, quote, self-proclaimed members of Hezbollah, unquote. That's the Iran-backed Islamist militant group. Hezbollah denies this. The DEA refused to comment on what it said was an ongoing investigation, We asked the Foreign Office about this, about the idea of Islamist militants fundraising in a British Caribbean paradise, and they again pointed us to Liz Truss's original statement 
about Foy's arrest, which doesn't answer the question. Either the British government knew about this operation and let it happen, in which case, who's in charge in the British Virgin Islands? Or it didn't know, in which case, same question, who's in charge? Prime Minister? In the middle of an island In the middle of an ocean Lots of time for sailing I'm walking barefoot in the This slow newscast was reported and produced by me, Giles Wittell, and by Claudia Williams. Additional reporting was by Sebastian Hervis-Jones. Sound design was by Tom Burchill. The editor was Jasper Corbett. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of The Slow Newscast. If you like what we do, you like our stories, you like our investigations and you want to support us and you want to get more of what we do, then you can join us as a member of our newsroom. Just go to tortoisemedia.com forward slash friend and use my code BASHA50. That's B-A-S-I-A 50. Thank you and I'll see you next week. Traffic jams tailgating, pile-ups. Ugh, the joys of driving. How could it get worse? The federal government wants to have a say in what you drive. That's right. The Biden administration's EPA is pushing mandates that would ban two out of every three vehicles on the road today. Don't let Washington become your backseat driver. Protect the freedom of driving your way. Visit energycitizens.org. Paid for by the American Petroleum Institute.